The Bible shapes how Christians live in and think about the world. Today is your opportunity to ask any questions about the Bible or to ask for a biblical perspective on current events and culture. It's Open Line Theology Day, so get your questions ready. This is Jerry Johnson live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is today's host, Dr. Barry Creamer. And man, am I glad to be here. I enjoy spending this time with you. I enjoy it when we have a lot of news that we have to cover. There is some news today that we'll talk about for a moment, but uh, I also really enjoy it when we get to do just this open line day and talk about theology and biblical perspectives and uh, just any questions you have on your mind, and that's what today is. So uh, we're not actually going to wait very long at all. We're going to open the lines right now. Now, we're going to play just a couple of things and talk about them just to get things started today, but we're going to open the lines now to say to you, if If you'd like to call with any Bible question, that doesn't mean we know the answer to it, but you raise the question, we'll discuss it, we'll try to put it in perspective, and uh, somebody out there will probably know the answer, but we're going to try to give an answer to it too. Now, I'm not sitting in the studio by myself, so if you lack confidence in my ability to give you a biblical or Christian answer to a question, I'll try not to take that personally, but I will point out that I'm not alone, and Dr. Everett Berry, Associate Professor of Theology here at Criswell College, is joining me in the studio. Dr. Barry, it's a great privilege to have you in the studio. Oh, thanks for letting me be here. Oh, man, uh, it's going to be fun. And uh, he's also here to keep me from being embarrassed by the things I say. So just assume if I get something wrong, it's so uh, that he can be set up to look good. That's that's my <laughs> highest goal. That's what this is about. So maybe it's not the Bible answer man. My producer points out just the question man. But we can certainly get the questions out there. So if you have a Bible question, if you have any question about theology or ministry, both of us have been in ministry. We've pastored for quite a few years. Uh, he up in uh, Kentucky, uh, me down here in Texas. He's also pastored down here in Texas, and uh, we would love to share with you whatever little bits of information we could uh, pull out of our brains or minds or experience uh, to give you some input anyway. So if you have a question about that, that's fine. Or if you have a question about current events or some current practice that you know is going on and you'd like to get a biblical or Christian perspective on that, we would love to discuss it. So you feel free to call in. The number is 1-800-881-9270. Now, we already do have a caller on the line. We're going to get right to him in just a second. But first, I want to get this uh, little reminder of something that happened on July 4th, the death of of Jesse Helms. I just want to point out that even in these 
uh, best-known leaders in our country. The reality is, when we agree with them and when we disagree with them, and there was a lot to agree with in Jesse Helms, there were some things historically that we probably disagreed with about him. I know there are some things that we disagreed with him about. But one thing we agree about, I mean, this man uh, was looking forward to heaven. This description is from that you're going to hear is from Minority Leader, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and he's describing Jesse Helms' highest goal. Listen to this. Jesse Helms once was asked whether he had any ambitions beyond the Senate. The only thing I'm running for, he said, is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, he goes on to talk just a little bit more and say that what he was looking for really was going to heaven. We are confident that he has heard those words he longed to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's joy. Now, I only bring that up today, not because we're going to spend much time on that topic at all, uh, but just to remind us that we're not Christians because we're able to affect certain social policies in the country. Uh, We are Christians because of its eternal truth, the righteousness that's represented by it. We're Christians because of Christ, because of what God does and what he wants to do in our lives. So that's our priority. And the fact that we're Christians changes the world around us, and it changes us, and it makes us socially involved. But let's keep in mind that the highest priority is our Christianity itself, the fact that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ personally. Now, uh, we've got one caller on the line. Let's talk to them first, and then we'll introduce a couple of other topics. So uh, I just want to thank Frank for calling in from Little Elm. It's nice to join you there. And uh, I hear you have a question maybe related to James chapter 4. Is that right? Um, yeah, actually, I was mistaken on the chapter. James chapter 5, right book, wrong chapter. That'll work. But, um, you know, the first six verses, he talks yeah. uh, about the rich. Yeah, and how they've and, kept and back the, the wages. really strong. But I was wondering if, um, you know, he changes his tone in verse 7, be patient, therefore, brethren, That's right. until the coming of the Lord. I guess my question is, do you feel he's talking to uh, people who are Christians in the first six verses, or these people, and obviously this is a letter, so his audience, are these, are these saved believers who are oppressing these people who are, that, that are wealthy, or do you feel that uh, these are you know, a completely different audience? I, I was trying to just understand the chapter. Yeah, I think he changes voices. Now, I'm just going to say to you, I've been doing quite a bit of studying in James just lately, so I have a fair opinion about this, and uh, whether I can defend it or not, we'll see. And I'm going to ask Dr. Barry to give his input on it in just a moment, too. I know he'll have an opinion about it. But I would just say in James chapter 5 in particular, now we know he's addressing the 12 tribes scattered abroad at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. But by the time he gets to chapter 5, he's been correcting believers on how they've been living out their faith in Christianity. Now, uh, uh, here's the deal. He corrects them pretty harshly all the way back in chapter 4. You know, he says they're living according to their own lusts, and they're killing each other and desiring things, and they're living in adultery, not necessarily literal adultery against their wives. But, you know, it's just very harsh language against believers. But when he gets to chapter 5, he seems to change the audience that he's speaking to in those first six verses, just like you said, because when he says, go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you, uh, he seems to be uh, describing 
for the sake of the Christians who are hearing it, he seems to be describing what's going to be happening to people who are not following Christ, maybe even not even pretending to follow Christ. And so the idea is the, the wealthy are going to face this judgment, which the believers have chosen against. That is, believers have chosen to mourn now instead of laughing now. And so those who have pursued wealth in this world and heaped together treasures for the last days, like he told us not to do in the Sermon on the Mount— uh, I'm breaking into sermon here, so I don't want to break into a full sermon, but I'm saying I think he's talking to—he's pronouncing judgment on the rich, whether they claim to be Christians or not, but the point is they've chosen not to live as Christians because they've chosen their money over serving others. And then the reason he changes tones in verse 7 is because he goes back to the believers to say, but you don't have to worry about that, because in patience you know God will come and judge them, and God will come and in his mercy take care of you. That's what I think is going on in the passage. Now, first I'm going to ask you, Frank, <laughs> first I'm going to say thanks for being so patient uh, with such a long answer, but I just want to say, you know, how do you react to that first? And then I want to ask Dr. Barry for his input on the on the on the question. Yeah, and I, I the tone is so dramatic. I, my yeah. my thinking was that the first couple of verses he was, you know, probably not addressing believers, and yet I couldn't understand yeah. how a letter to to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So it you know to your maybe my expectation was that these were all believers from the beginning, which it may may very well be, and that probably was the source of of my confusion. So. Home changes so dramatically. I guess that was, yeah. you know, the basis of my question. Yeah, it is. Well, again, there's a lot of harshness at the beginning of chapter four, and clearly that is directed toward believers who are not acting like believers. But I'll, I'll also point out that the other place the wealthy are mentioned is back in chapter two, right. when he said, uh, "Is this what you were going to point out?" Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to let you point it out then, Doctor Barry. What's your take on it? Yeah, this? I think it makes sense to say that he is talking to unbelievers because the injunction of judgment is obviously a warning to the unbeliever, but it's also an admission to the believers. Look, you don't want to show favoritism to the rich. In chapter 2, he he uh, condemns that. And one of the reasons you do that is because the rich aren't concerned about God, much less you as believers. And then this warning of judgment that comes upon the rich because of the activities they're involved in is to be an admonition to the believers to not give them favoritism simply because what right. they— what they find appealing will be the source of judgment later on. Yeah, yeah, very good. I agree with that completely. Frank, any uh, questions about that? All good? No, it's great. I really love your program. Thank hey. you both for your time. Hey, thanks so much. And we're Thank we're you. really privileged to be sitting in here for Dr. Johnson. He's uh, over in London right now on a trip to Oxford with our students that happens every year. And so we're grateful for the privilege of sitting in. Thanks for your calls. Uh, Sharon, thank you so much for calling. Glad to join you in Dallas. Uh, just want to invite your question. What's on your mind? Okay. Um, the way I would like to it is, uh, how does the Bible address, we're, we're in the election year, and we yes. are wanting to, uh, you know, be an influence in the world as believers. Right. And how, I mean, what, if anything, does the Bible say about us, even though we may not uh, 100% support a candidate's views on things, but, you know, maybe they are standing for uh, principles and and uh, you know things that sure. we believe in as as Christians. Sure. Um, are, you know, I've heard some people say that they would just abstain from voting. Right. As, as a believer, and 
I'm not sure how I feel about that because I feel like as believers we're to have an impact and an influence in the world. Okay, so, so let me see if I, I because you could answer your question quite a few different directions. So I want to make sure if I get at least a portion of the question in one direction that's going to be helpful. And I think a portion of the question is if we're believers and we vote, let's say, on conscience and what we actually believe in, and we're faced with two candidates, both of whom, if we vote for, we're going to be exercising something of a compromise because we're not going to get exactly what we want. Right. Should we go ahead and vote and participate? in some way, or should we stand our ground, represent our conscience, and just accept the fact that we've been left out of the process? Is that, uh, base, is that one way of asking your question? Yes. Oh, okay, great yeah. question. I'm going to throw it to Dr. Barry first and just get your reaction to it. Dr. Barry, what are you thinking about all this? Well, part of the reason these questions come up is because we want to make a distinction between wh- who we are as the church, what's our job as a Christian, as a part of God's kingdom, right. versus the kingdoms and the ways of the world, the present age. Right. And the church's job is not to function as the government, nor right. is it the government's job to function as the church. Right. The church's job is to proclaim the gospel so that the power of the gospel, the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit can change men and women's hearts right. so that they can have eternal life, etc. Right. The government's job is to, which, by the way, is a divinely ordained job. From Romans 13, you're right. saying. Okay. Right. Their job is to restrain the external conduct of evil in the world. Right. Okay. Church's job is to change the heart so that the evil eventually goes away. Right. Government's job is to restrain it. Right. And so if, if, as a Christian, when I'm voting, I'm not voting it's because I support a candidate necessarily with all the different views they have. I'm trying to find the candidate that's going to lead the government to restrain as much evil as possible. Ah, I like that answer. I'm, I'm real good with that answer. I just want to know, Sharon, if you're hearing that, does that make any sense to you? What yeah, are you thinking? I'm sorry. It's a little bit hard for me to hear, Dr. But uh, I believe what you said was that we're not voting for the candidate specifically in his beliefs, but that we are voting for, uh, you know, him, the best one to restrain evil. You got it. That's right. Yeah, you got it. Does that make sense to you? So, in other words, you may not support 100%, but if you believe that they are, uh, you know, that they are uh, standing for, I don't know, a predominant number of beliefs that... You well, know, it's not uh, just a predominant number of beliefs, Sharon, I'd say, if I can interject, right. and Dr. Barry, you let me know if this disagrees with you even. Uh, but I'm saying, you know, even when we're praying for our leaders who are in authority, we're not just praying that they make all the decisions we want them to make or that right. they rule the government in a, in, right. in a strictly Christian fashion, although that would be the best thing. Our prayer is that we can live in godliness and in reverence uh, and uh, do good in the sight of God and be acceptable yes. in the sight of God our Savior and lead a quiet and peaceable life. That's our prayer. So, yes, I, well, thought, I was thinking of that scripture the other day. About yeah, for, that. that's First Timothy 2. That's, that's the, the prayer that we life. offer up for kings. Right. So, so, yeah, I, I would say it's not really a compromise of our position at all. It, it's actually a very adamant defense of this desire that we have that the government restrain evil so that we can live out our Christianity without interference. And if one candidate's going to do that better than another, that's the candidate I'm going to vote for. Even though I think, Sharon, I probably have similar uh, uh, problems with you on each candidate. Sharon, I just want to thank you for your call. Thanks for uh, calling in and asking us that. That was an excellent question. And I'm going to invite all the callers. Uh, I know we have one on the line already. We, well, actually, we have a couple on the line. So if you you can call in. The number is 1-800-881-9270. We'd love to hear your Bible question, your question about current events, where we can give it some kind of biblical or Christian perspective. If we don't have the answer or the perspective you're looking for, somebody out there will, and we'll talk about it together. We're going to have fun doing that. So if you have a question, call 1-800-881-9270, and we're going to keep talking about how Christ is central to this culture and our living Him out in this world when we come back on Jerry Johnson Live. 
got a full-time job and a family, and I'm also getting a master's degree at Criswell College. The new Mac at Night program offers evening block courses for a Master of Arts in Counseling degree. It's so convenient and fits my busy lifestyle as a mom and a professional. Mac at Night offers licensure and non-licensure programs so you can gain ministry knowledge and even prepare for a doctorate. Mac at Night professors are at the top of the Christian counseling field, and Criswell College is partnered with a number of ministries, so you'll get experience and great contacts. My friends and family are so excited to see me back in school with the Mac at Night program at Criswell College. A Master of Arts in Counseling has never been so convenient. Come on, join me for Mac at Night. For more details, call 800-899-0012 or visit chriswell.edu. Invest in God's kingdom and in yourself through the Chriswell College. See us on the web at chriswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now, here's today's host, Dr. Barry Creamer. Hey, we're having a great day on Theology Day here. Just inviting you to call in with any Bible questions that you have, any question of theology or maybe ministry or a question about current events or current practices that you see going on and you'd like to get a biblical or Christian perspective about it. I'm in the studio with Dr. Everett Berry, Associate Professor of Theology from Criswell College, and we're just trying to banner these things around, give you our immediate response to it, but also invite your responses to it if you want to call in and, and give some feedback to it. The lines are staying pretty full, but if you'd like to call in. We'd love to have you call and ask one of these questions. You know, I get to do this sometimes in my churches. I just love doing stuff like this. I love getting to talk about what people are interested in, something they haven't had a chance to ask somewhere else. And, you know, it's just a great time. Don't you love? I, I, seriously, don't you just love when you get to sit down and say, hey, what does the Bible say about such and such? And you just get to start talking about it. Do you enjoy that? It's much more excitable yes. when you're present, too, though. <laughs> well, that's just because I like to you, argue this yeah, you stuff. You bring a so, flair with it. So we'll, yeah, hopefully not as the devil's advocate. Anyway, uh, uh, we're, I, I'm going to invite you to call in at 1-800-881-9270. That's 1-800-881-9270 if you'd like to. If the line's busy, just be patient. Call right back, and we'll get you on the air. We want to get to your question just as quickly as we can. I'm going to go to Jerry in Dallas. Thank you so much for calling. Appreciate your patience also. And uh, I want to find out what your question is or your comment. Uh, what's on your mind, Jerry? Yes, can you hear me okay? Sure. Okay, great. Um, just in light of Ephesians 4 and the responsibility for pastors and uh, especially elders to sure. be uh, teaching and equipping the body of Christ, right? and then looking at the, what I would call the New Testament model of Christ and Paul and the apostles, it sure seems that they spent a lot of their time doing ministry in homes, and it sure seems... From what I see in the New Testament, what I see in the church in America today, it sure doesn't look the same. And I had the privilege of spending some time in the last few years in Cuba, and in going into the homes with the pastors, I right. see them doing a lot more ministry in the sure. home there, and they sure seem to be able to encourage, exhort, and teach and do a lot of things in the homes. And here, right. because of our lack of community, and I know <laughs> we have some barriers here, yeah. that we, we really go to small groups, and I think that's great, and I think it's needed, but right. nevertheless, it's seems that by and large the church is being shepherded here in the U.S. by small group leaders. Yeah, right. And I've, I've actually been doing surveys recently, and when I ask people, has, has your pastor visited you in the last year? Right. Most people tell me that their pastor has never visited them. Yeah, so very... What your comments on that? Right. Yeah, very, uh, you know, very complex question, obviously uh, well thought out, and uh, you've studied it pretty thoroughly. And I do have, you know, I do have some opinions on that. I want to hear what Dr. Barry says first in response to it. Um, I, I'm just going to throw in real quickly, in addition to what you said, 
said, in India I experienced something similar to that. They might have a central church that was large, but then the churches themselves were actually these uh, small groups, 10 to 15 families, the pastor would minister to them and so on. Um, I'm curious, though, Dr. Berry, do you take this as a prescriptive statement? Does it have to be that way? Is it possible for a megachurch to do real Christian ministry, New Testament-type Christian ministry, that kind of stuff? What What do you think about all that? Well, I don't think when you read the New Testament, on the one hand, that you're going to have members of a church, say in Colossae or Ephesus or Corinth, right. who are going to be upset if what we call the pastor <laughs> doesn't, doesn't come, come visit them in the hospital. How, yeah, however, <laughs> the reason I say that is because when I read the New Testament, I don't see a church having one pastor. Oh, okay. Having one particular. You can <laughs> so have, we're going to go down that road, are we? We can have multiple shepherds in a church, then you're not going to have only one personality. That doesn't mean. I, doesn't mean you have to have. I'm not. I'm not denying that you can have one who has more authority than others. Okay. I'm just saying All you right. don't have a personality issue with. Well, if you have one church that has one pastor, right? And the one pastor is going to have to have more responsibility. But if you have uh, other under shepherds, that can help alleviate some of it. Yeah, I, I get that. But I'm reading the book of Acts, and I get to chapter six, and you know where I'm going with this. But I, I don't. I don't come to the same conclusion necessarily that Jerry has because I'm reading. I'm reading Acts chapter six and thinking, hey, here were some guys who were separated from the people who were under their ministry. You know, these apostles, they're ministering in Jerusalem and they're uh, teaching, and they don't want to be distracted by all the needs of these widows who are uh, being neglected in the daily ministry. And mm-hmm. so they have the church pick out some people from among them, and they go out and start doing the ministry. And that sounds like. Uh, I mean, I, that doesn't sound far at all uh, to me from essentially the same thing as these home groups. I mean, they're not doing Bible study in order right. to do it, but they've got, you know, a minister under a minister who goes and ministers to them, and nobody complains because the big pastor didn't come see him in the hospital. Right. So uh, is that an unfair comparison for me to make in your no, opinion? No, what are you thinking? I also think part of the problem, too, is accountability. Right. Many times folks in church, they—not they, they not, not every time, but many times they get upset if the pastor doesn't come to see them in right. crisis or just come to see them at all. Yeah. But at the same time, the reason they want the pastor to come see them is so that they can just socialize. Yeah. I mean, right. if a pastor were to come, I agree. Visit, oh, I agree. I mean, if a pastor were to come visit a family and ask questions like, "So, how's your prayer life today?" Right. Or uh, how's It'd be a your, different thing, wouldn't it? That's right. I'm telling you, I, my, this is my experience too, Jerry. I'm just going to thank you for a fantastic call. You've obviously obviously thought through this, and we're not really going to answer you, uh, but we're just going to thank you for the information you shared mm-hmm. and uh, say everybody ought to be thinking about this. But but along the same lines, I'm going to say, and I, I really do want your feedback to this too, Doctor Barry. Before we get to the next caller, which we're going to get to in just a moment, I know everybody's being very patient waiting online, and uh, hopefully Jerry's line uh, now open uh, opens up one more line for somebody to call in at 1-800-881-9270 if you can call and ask your Bible or Christian question, whatever you want to ask, or a culture question, you want a Christian perspective on it. But I do want to say, I, I, I really do not want to become too limiting in the type of structure that we can use in churches to do ministry, because uh, I will say, in, in agreement with what you just said, I think making a pastor nothing more than a chaplain, and I'm not trying to mitigate the importance of chaplain chaplains, but making a pastor nothing more than a chaplain is really understating what a pastor is called to be in the New Testament. Uh, but by the same token, I'm not going to say a megachurch can't do legitimate ministry just because a pastor can't visit every person in that megachurch uh, in that megachurch family. Uh, by the same token, I think there are plenty of small family churches that don't do very good ministry either because they're not really equipping disciples. So uh, the question is training and accountability, like you mentioned. Would you add anything to that? Anything? Well, another problem, too, for many uh 
family churches in other countries, many times they don't have a pastor at all. Oh, right. And no training for right. the pastor they do have. That's a right. very difficult thing. Both you and I have been overseas and done some of that training. It's a very difficult thing. People ought to be praying for that and looking for it. Okay, thanks for your patience and waiting for the next caller. Uh, I think we're going to Cindy. Is that right? Am I reading this right? So, uh, Cindy, glad to join you in Greenville. Would love to hear your question. Uh, what's on your mind today, Cindy? I would like to say thank you very much for your program. I'm listening to your program every afternoon on the way home from work, and I have learned so many wonderful things. Oh, well, praise the Lord. I'll pass it on to Dr. Johnson, too. <laughs> and what I have learned, I have passed on to family and friends, too. So Great. It's a wonderful program. But anyway, my question is, I am a born-again, baptized Christian. Yeah. attend my church regular, but I was visiting another church, and they were having the Lord's Supper. Okay. They made it perfectly clear that the only people allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper were members of that church. Right. right. Okay. I was embarrassed, ashamed. Really? That. Yes, because my church, anyone who is a Christian who believes is allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. Oh, okay, all right. And they said there was some place in the Bible that says that you had to be... <laughs> I guess a right. member of that table or a yeah. member of that church, and yeah. that's how they did their beliefs. Well, how about if we just talk about that? Because there, there, are, you know, at least three com- fairly distinct positions to take on who should and shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. So, if we discuss that for a minute, will that help at all, Cindy? Perfect. Okay, let's do that, Doctor Barry. I'm just going to ask you first. I mean, what's she talking about? Why would people do that? Why would they say, "Hey, don't take the Lord's Supper if you're not a member here"? Why would that happen? Right. Well, I'll avoid all the Protestant versus Catholic. Yeah, I mean, just give us the big on. picture. Basically, like you mentioned, you can you can categorize at least three different ways of approaching this. Some uh, Christian traditions argue for open communion, which right. means that any belie- any professing believer, uh, whether they're baptized or not, infant baptism, believer's baptism, whatever, right. they are. And you could even say that some would argue that anyone can be invited to partake, yeah, whether I was believer in a or not. not. I was in a church not too long ago where they practiced open communion. Right. It was anybody. Right. Absolutely but, anybody. But typically the phrase open communion means any be- professing any believer. believer. Okay. Uh, then you have what you could call close communion. Right. Close communion would be any professing believer. And this one's the most difficult. I think I've heard some people say this is cracked communion. Cracked? I like that. I like <laughs> anyway, that. I like, I like that. Uh, c- this this idea is a professing believer who is in uh, a member in good standing of a church, another church, and they've been baptized. They're they're invited to partake. Right. But again, that one's more complicated. Whether right. it's a believer's baptism, infant baptism, etc. And enforcement's impossible. That's right. It can be very <laughs> difficult. And then thirdly, you have the one where she went to church that right. they visited. It's called closed communion. Right. And that's the idea that only members of the given local church that is having communion are allowed to partake. Yeah, right. Now, now that one is usually practiced in very conservative churches, right? Closed right. communion. Typically, in among at least, I don't know what kind of denomination she she was attending, but typically churches that practice closed communion either do so because they're afraid that they might have a guest who may be under church discipline right, or who's right. not a believer, and so they're trying to police the people who— right. or. Uh, they argue that communion is to be practiced only by the local church, and if it's only practiced by the local church, then only members of that church can partake. Right. Now, where would they get that idea? Any idea in scriptures where uh, she could well, look this up and just read some more about it? Uh, well, it, it comes from an idea known known as landmarkism. Right. Landmarkism arguing that a particular church or a particular tradition or denomination can be traced back to the New Testament. Right. And so only that group is allowed to partake. 
to give the Lord's Supper, which means only members of that church. So if, if you went to a landmarkist, would they say, hey, it's just because of our tradition, or would they say, hey, this is because 1 Corinthians 14 says, this is what, I mean, 1 Corinthians 11 says, this is what communion is supposed to be? Well, like. they would argue that in the New Testament, you only have local churches. You never have any kind okay. of cross-breeding. Or okay, cross fair enough. And another, you know, another way to get the point across why this seems important to people, and, and I'm not saying it's unimportant, I think it is important, but the reason it seems important is because, you know, we only have really two ordinances. Now, maybe we ought to say there are three, but there are two ordinances, and that is uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism is that initiatory rite. It's the way we come into the local church, especially from a landmarkist perspective. That's right. the actual event of right. becoming a member of a local church. And the Lord's Supper indicates ongoing fellowship in that right. church. Right. Now, we have other callers on the line. I'm sorry we didn't get to the next caller yet, but we're going to. And if you're willing to hang on the lines, we're going to take you right after this next break that's coming up. We're doing an open line theology day and inviting people to call in. Just ask any Bible question you have, any question about current events. You just want a biblical perspective or a Christian perspective on it. And we've had great calls so far, interesting topics to talk about. I want to invite your calls too, including if you're not a believer or if you're a skeptic or if you're somebody who just doesn't agree with us on a particular position. You don't have to agree for us to have fun talking to you, talking about the Lord talking about Scripture. Anytime we're spending talking about the Word, we're going to have a good time because it's the center of our faith and practice. It's what we want to do. And so I'm going to invite you to stay with us here on Jerry Johnson Live as we come back for more Open Line Theology. Listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now, here's today's host, Dr. Barry Creamer. Hey, welcome back. We're having a great time today doing Open Theology Day. Just call with a Bible question, a question about current events. You want a biblical or Christian perspective on it? We want to give that to you. If we can't, just give it to you directly. Then uh, somebody else will call in, and I'm sure they'll have it as well. So uh, we want to do this as much as we can from a biblical perspective. And uh, if you have a Bible question, that's great. If you have a question that's not, we want to answer it in terms of what the Scripture teaches about it, our best understanding in those lines anyway. So uh, first, we're going to go to Kyle in Dallas. Thanks so much for calling, Kyle, and thanks for your patience. I know you've been waiting for a while. So uh, what's on your mind, Kyle? Well, you know I like to practice patience. Anyways, I was wondering about Ephesians 2.15. Um, All right. Paul says uh, Christ came to abolish the law in right. his flesh. And uh, in reconciliation with Matthew 5.17... Right, okay. So uh, he didn't come to abolish the law. Okay, so Everett, you, what you have is, Dr. Barry, Everett, what you have is uh, Ephesians 2.15, having abolished, talking about what Christ did, he himself is our peace, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments. So he does make it clear that's what he uh, abolishes. But then we all know the passage in the Sermon on the Mount right. where he says, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Right. So uh, what's up with that? Is he destroying it or fulfilling it? Is he abolishing it or maintaining it? What's up? Both. Okay, how, does, how can he do both? That well, sounds self in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about... Uh, it, I haven't come to abolish law to fulfill it. All the different things he's talking about, you've heard it said that such and such, but I say unto you. You've heard it said this way, but I say unto you. And his point is, look, this is the way the law has been interpreted. Here's what the law is about. And so all the things I'm saying, I'm not here to abolish what the law says. I'm here to fulfill it. Right. But it's been misunderstood. It's not simply about external conduct, but problems of the heart, issues of the heart. Right. When Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, the, the issue is not about the law 
by itself. As it's written. Right. But the law as it stands against us as our enemy because right. we are uh, transgressors. And so the condemnation and the enmity that we have with God because we are breakers of his law, Christ has come and he has abolished that wall. Which is why he says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, and then he says more specifically the one that was in the law of the commandments, contained in right. ordinances and so on. So which it's also, not the ordinances he abolishes, but the enmity that came out of them that he abolished. Which also means that Jewish Christians cannot be condescending to Gentile Christians because the law is irrelevant. Yeah, good, good, very good. And, you know, for any student I've ever had, you're going to hear me say this, and you'll know I teach this in every class I have, but uh, this is a very simple principle. Anytime you're faced with a contradiction, make a distinction. So all you have to do here is see the distinction between how law is used in one place right. and how it's used in another place. And it's just a common feature of language. It's not a it's not a, a trick or a, or a gimmick to get out of a problem. It's just a reality about language. We use words in lots of different ways, and we have to be very precise about how we're going to describe them. This is why people get into trouble when they're reading a passage that mentions the word salvation, and they just assume that it's talking about being saved from sin and delivered to heaven, when it might be talking about being delivered from a pond of water and drowning, right. So, right. Uh, because it's just the word deliverance. Okay, so anyway, uh, there we go. Thank you very much, Kyle. Great question. I appreciate your time and calling in and the patience you always demonstrate, apparently. Uh, Lilani, I appreciate you also calling in. And uh, Lilani, North Richland Hills, we're going to join you there and invite your question about, I think, going to heaven. Is that right? That's right. Okay, Lilani, thanks for calling. What's up? You know, John 3.16 states that if you believe in Jesus, you know, that you get eternal life. Okay, now my question is, is that where it begins and ends? And it says that you need to become as little children. So then you come and you become born again. Um, Explain to me how you get to heaven. Okay. I love Jesus. I understand that. But what else? Uh, this is, uh, no, I understand the question, I think, but I want to make sure and rephrase it so we don't uh, jaunt off in the wrong direction. Uh, the statement, like in John th- John 3.16, which everybody's familiar with, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you just believe, and you're done. Uh, you believe, you go to heaven. But then there are plenty of other passages where he's instructing us to do some very specific things in order to be disciples. You know, like, if a man wants to follow me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, meaning the only way you can follow me is if you deny yourself and take up your cross daily. So which one does it take, Dr. Barry? I'm so confused. How do I get to heaven? Well, when she mentioned the passage about... Uh, this is a good question. Coming, Thanks for calling. Right, when it. she mentioned the, the idea of coming as little children. Right, right. Okay. That's the point. If you're coming to coming to Christ as a little child trusts and believes the okay. uh, dependability of the source, the parent, that's likewise what we do. We cast our security and our identity right. and our trust upon him. Right. So, not not in our own strength. And so being right. born again is becoming a child again because you right. really are completely dependent on God's grace right. for your salvation that's instead right. of all those works you thought were going to merit it to begin with. Right. Uh, so that's a fair enough answer. So uh, I guess, you know, in answer to your question, uh, Lilani, are you still on the line, Lilani? Yes. I just wanted to follow up with you and make sure we're getting the right point in your question. You know, in response to it, the words I wanted to add are, there might be a process involved in how we demonstrate what God has changed in our life from the time we're born again. There might be a process involved in sanctifying our minds so that we live in holiness to God in this world. But uh, the fact of being born again is something which, once we believe, is resolved. And by believe, I don't just mean, hey, I think there may be a God out there. I think I believe in God. But I mean, we commit our lives to him in faith. That's what faith is about. So uh, does that make any sense to you, Lalani? Well, yeah. I guess that the, the conversation I've had with some friends lately yeah. has indicated to them that as long as you believe, you get to go to heaven. And I guess that I just don't think it's that easy. 
Ah, oh, oh my goodness. I, I actually think it might be easier than you think it is. Uh, it's, I see. Yeah, I, I mean, the reality is there's nothing we could do to earn salvation, right? I mean, how much more Good difficult point. would you want to make it? Um, so, I, you know, I, I guess I would say this. I, nothing about the fact that salvation is a free gift, and I'm using Paul's words in Romans, you know. Nothing about saying salvation is a free gift means that living out our Christianity is easy or uh, doesn't involve personal salvation sacrifice or is not a process of, of maturation growing up in him. Uh, so I don't think we have to compromise the nature of free salvation to arrive at a, at a discipleship that's meaningful. Uh, so I, I'd hate to give that up. Okay, Lalani? Oh, thank you. <laughs> hey, thanks for your call. You were, you were a great caller. You were very uh, patient with us. Uh, Dwight, want to thank you for calling from Denton. You're calling about uh, losing salvation. Is that right, Dwight? Well, yes, sir. I wanted to... Uh some explanation a little bit. Hey, uh, Dwight, just before you just before you get into the question, I want to say to everybody, I think we have one line open right now, and so I'm going to invite you, if you have a call, uh, you have a question you want to ask, you have a topic you want to bring up, to call 1-800-881-9270. I hate to do that to you, Dwight, but I keep ignoring my producer, and he's got to get my attention eventually. So oh, again, okay. the number is 1-800-881-9270 if you'd like to call. But now, Dwight, uh, get right to it. I'm sorry about that. Well, I was just a small child in a missionary Baptist church. Right. And they believe... I believe that um, once you have your salvation, you always have it. You can't lose that. All right. I was raised as a teenager in a Pentecostal church. Okay. They believe that the you opposite. can lose your salvation. Sure. What scripture are each basing their opinion on? <laughs> uh, you know, the reason I'm laughing is only because there are so many scriptures that people go to at this point. So, Dr. Barry, the way I'm going to ask you is, how about your favorite one or two passages that deal with uh, why we believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, as we traditionally say it, or uh, once saved, never lost again, as some people say it, you know, however you want to say it, the uh, security of the believer. Why do we believe in that? Just one or two passages you favor, and then maybe I'll pick one or two that are that are on the other side. The reason we that you had this, and by the way, this is not a a new disagreement. This goes all the, all the way back to oh, yeah. Great topic, Christian Dwight. thought. Uh, essentially, in the New Testament, you have passages that speak of the permanency of salvation, uh, the irreversible uh, outcomes of salvation, right. and then at the same time, you have warnings to believers to conduct themselves in certain ways as to avoid judgment. Okay, And so you have some who want to... Who, interpret the warning passages as saying, look, the only way the warning passages really make sense is that the believer can forfeit uh, their identity as a believer. Okay, all right. And so those who hold to eternal security, once saved, always saved, will argue that the warning, but they give different options for what the warning passages are saying, Right. whereas those who deny it say that the right. warnings mean that you can lose it. So permanency passages, uh, obviously any passage that talks about eternal life, if it's something you receive, then you can lose it, then it's not, it's not eternal. It's not eternal. So John 3, 16, <laughs> et cetera. Sure. John 10, 27 through right. 29, same That's way. That's right. Uh-huh. Or, or Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, that passage. Right. Or where Jesus says, no man can pluck you out of my, uh, yeah, that's the one. Out of my hand. That's the one I'm talking about. Right. But then also you have passages, many warning passages. For instance, the most famous one, Hebrews 6. Sure. Uh, for those who fall away. Or 2 Peter 2, 1, where he talks about false teachers who are obviously condemned. Right. But he says they deny the Lord who bought them. So yeah, yeah. obviously uh, uh, atonement language for right. someone who's not going to heaven. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the reason you have this debate is because you have permanency passages versus warning passages. You know, one of the most interesting passages to me that sort of shows both sides of the issue, why uh, it's important to think in terms of these warnings and uh, even praying for people that their salvation would be completed, things like that. 
but also recognizing that it will be completed. There's not really a question about whether God's going to finish what he said he was going to finish or not, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you know, the prayer at the end of that chapter that he's offering, uh, when he's praying for them, is he says, um, uh, now, unto the, now the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that's a prayer that he's offering. So it might happen, it might not, according to the prayer. But then the next statement he makes is, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And he doesn't just say it there to the Thessalonians or the Thessalonians, but he also says it to the Corinthians, a church where he's just scolding them for their disobedience and for their shallowness. And he does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He offers thanks for their salvation, and he offers confidence that God is going to finish what he started in. He does the same thing in Philippians chapter 1. Those are my favorite passages to deal with it. It would be almost unfair to bring up the passages uh, that people use to say that you could lose your salvation because, you know, we just don't believe it means that at all. For instance, if we sin willfully in Hebrews 10, Mm -hmm. after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, in 45 seconds, I'm just going to respond to that. There are people who think that means if I sin on purpose after I've been saved, then I lose my salvation. But you just think about this for a minute, Hebrews 10, 26 and following. That statement says, if we sin after we receive the knowledge of the truth, so we find out what it means to be saved, and we sin willfully. All sins are willful if you just mean you did it on purpose. It means you sin with your will. So you reject the sacrifice that brings salvation. The statement at the end is, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. The the statement is very simply, if you reject Christ as Savior, there is no other sacrifice to bring about your salvation. It has nothing to do with losing salvation. It has to do with never receiving the salvation that's offered to you and that you know about. And there are other people who read it different ways. There are lots of discussions about it. But we absolutely believe, once you're saved, you're safe in Christ. Hey, keep listening on Jerry Johnson Live. Call with more questions. Criswell College is proud to present the new Mac at Night program. It's a Master of Arts in Counseling degree obtained by attending evening block classes. There are licensure and non-licensure options depending on your career goals. Mac at Night features some of the best professors in the field of Christian counseling, and all courses are biblically based. Expand your ministry or prepare for a doctorate. Criswell College makes it simple and convenient. All Mac at Night courses are scheduled with the working professional in mind. If you've got a full-time job, a busy lifestyle, or even raising a family, you're perfect for Mac at Night. Get your Master of Arts in Counseling at Criswell College with Mac at Night. Call 800-899-0012 or go to criswell.edu. That's 800-899-0012 or criswell.edu. Invest in God's work and yourself through this convenient program through the Criswell College. It's Mac at Night. See criswell.edu. That's criswell.edu. listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's today's host, Dr. Barry Creamer. All right, it's been a whirlwind of a time. We've been having a great time just talking about the Bible today, figuring out different uh, you know, ways to discuss certain issues that come up in people's minds, and invite you also, if you can call in just the next couple of minutes, the lines may be full right this moment, but if you can squeeze in, it's number 1-800-881-9270. If you just have a Bible or ministry or Christian question you want to ask, or cultural question, just like a biblical perspective on it, uh, first we're going to go to Jayla, take up the calls right away again. Jayla, uh, not sure I understand what the question is you're going to ask, but we like to hear it. What's what's on your mind, Jayla? Oh, it's me. Okay, I'm sorry, Jayla. You were saying Jayla. I was like, oh, okay. I'm uh, sorry. My question is, yes. if you're a born-again Christian and you believe in Jesus Christ and with all your heart, and 
but I hear talk about only 10,000 will be gathered. I don't understand the 10,000. Oh, I'm glad you don't, because I don't think it makes any biblical sense whatsoever. Dr. Barry, do you have anything to add to that? Well, when we were on break and I saw that the question was coming up about 10,000, the, right. the only thing I could think of right. was in Jude, right. verse 14, where Jude cites Enoch, a uh, pseudepigraphal writing. and Meaning an Old Testament writing, we don't know where it came from. Right, anyway. right, right, sorry. Uh, and it, the quotation is, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. But all that means is we can't count how many are coming. Right. It's just tens of thousands. Yeah, and, and, it, and it certainly wouldn't be limited to that. I mean, it's no, there's no way in, at all in Jude that it says he comes with 10,000s of his saints and no more. Uh, right, there's right. just nothing like that at all. Jayla, I, I, really, I think you probably already knew this, but uh, somebody's feeding you a line. <laughs> well, I, I didn't understand because I listen to so many different programs. And right. Someone talks about in the latter days when we're all gathered into heaven that there's going to be so many of this one and so many of this one and yeah. so many of that one. Yeah. And my thing is always I've always been taught that the, the Jews are God's chosen people and they're going to be the first. You know, that's God's chosen people, and we well, do everything we can to yeah. protect them. And I mean. Right. I, there's so many things that I've been taught. Yeah, oh man, and it does get confusing. The whole discussion of Israel's salvation, the salvation of the Gentiles outside of Israel, what's all that like? I mean, that's a whole different discussion. It would take forever to try to get into it right now. But just be assured this, that it has nothing to do with saying there are certain groups of people who are going to get in and certain groups of people who aren't, because the entrance is all through the blood of Christ. And, I, and I'll only add to that. Jayla, this was a great call. Thank you very much for your call. But I'll only add to it before we move to the next caller, um, that this is probably the only program you ought to be listening to and then that would solve that problem for you. Okay, there we go. Now, you know I'm totally joking, but uh, thank you for calling in. I appreciate, I appreciate the question. Uh, and seriously, Jayla, uh, that's probably the way I would take it and understand it, and I know where that confusion comes from, because it does get difficult when you try to figure out, well, why is it talking about this flock and that flock and so on? Uh, but none of that changes the fact that we all come into heaven through Christ. We're all in God's presence through the blood of Christ, and uh, that's the only thing that really matters right now. Okay, now, Jerry, thanks so much for calling. Glad to join you in Garland, and I want to get an idea of what your question is today. What's on your mind? Well, my question is, is Jesus wrote in the dirt. Does anybody know what he wrote? <laughs> you know, uh, that's a great way to ask that question. That's probably the best way I've heard that question asked, and, that, and the answer is very simple. No. Uh, I've heard lots of people speculate about what they think it was. Man, I've heard people preach entire sermons on what they believe uh, he wrote in the sand. I mean, would you agree with me, first of all, just up front? Uh, do you think you know what he wrote in the sand, Dr. Barry? I don't even know if John knew what he wrote in the sand. <laughs> well, that seems to be the point. Yeah. He certainly doesn't record it for us, and it doesn't matter what he wrote in the sand. But I've heard whole preachers preach, hey, it's a, he wrote the Ten Commandments so that they would feel convicted about their guilt, or he wrote the names of the women. Yeah, this is what our producer was reminding us of just now. I've heard a preacher preach that, he, that Jesus was writing the names of the women that those men had committed adultery with, and that as they saw the names of the women, they would leave. Now, really, I mean, that's so—what are, what are we doing? It's not like the Bible doesn't say enough that we— we have something to talk about. It's so, good preaching. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, if we're going to preach the Bible, we really ought to preach what is in it instead of what we want to add to it. Because if he needed it to be in there, I think he would have put it there, but he didn't. So I actually make the point, and this is the only conclusion I would draw from it if I were trying to draw an affirmative conclusion from it, would be to say that John didn't want us to know what he wrote because it didn't matter what he wrote. The point was that instead of answering their question, he went back to writing in the sand, basically 
ignoring them. Now, that's what I think. Some people would just say it doesn't really matter why he went back to writing in the sand. It's just the fact that he doesn't answer them until later. I am am basically making the same point. He does not respond on their terms. They want to interrupt his teaching. He continues to teach. And when they come back to him and persist and he finally does answer, it's because he's going to teach his point to them, not because he's just going to give a knee-jerk reaction to the question that they wanted to ask, uh, like Dr. Barry and I are doing today. But anyway, that was a great question. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for the input. Uh, We've got uh, Lauren. Is that right? Got Lauren next. Thanks so much for calling in, Lauren. What's on your mind? I have a question. Um, My mother passed away several months ago, and I've had people that uh, even pastors would say that that in in Hebrews it says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and they believe that She's still watching us and interested in what we're doing, and I had never heard that before, and I wondered how y'all would interpret that. Yeah. Uh, that passage. Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I would love to give an answer to that. I'm going to in just a second. I'm going to give Dr. Barry first shot at it. Do you have an opinion on that passage, Hebrews yeah. 11 into 12? You know, it starts in chapter 12. Right. Wherefore, right. seeing we're compassed about, so great. I, I think the point the writer's making is the heritage of faithfulness that previous believers have left behind. They leave a trail that we are to follow. Right. And so that's why he uses the imagery of a race. You have Absolutely. an arena. You have, and, the, and the audience is not made up of spectators. The audience is made up of people who have already lived it, who have already right. gone through a life of faithfulness, and now they await us. But the point's not necessarily that they're looking at us. Yeah, it's not that they're an audience. It right. is that they were the testimony that we're to follow. That's right. I think I, I just agree with that 100% because we're running short on time. I'm going to run ahead. But I'm going to say, Lauren, I, I do think it's it's clear in the passage. Now, it does not say people watch us from heaven or don't watch us from heaven. It is clear in the passage because it follows the what everybody calls Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, that he lists the faithfulness of one believer after another from the Old Testament. And then he says, so, since you've got their testimony, you follow it, and you live out your faith in reality, and you have haven't made the sacrifice they've made yet because you haven't suffered unto blood down in Hebrews 12. Right. So, uh, you know, in that light, I think the more important thing is that we be faithful where we are. And we just don't want to get caught up in something that sounds like, you know, praying to the saints or being right. motivated by those but, who died. But the writer does say that the same person is at the finish line for every believer. Yeah, and that's Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Very good. That's who we focus on. That's what's so important. Great call, Lauren. Thanks so much. You know, I doubt we're going to have time to get to the next caller because I'm looking at it. We've only got about a minute left. So uh, we're just going to stop right here and say this uh, to you. First of all, Dr. Barry, I want to thank you for the time to talk about the Bible with you. Sure. uh, I just have a blast talking with you all the time. When we get to have lunch together, we get to argue stuff like this all the time. And uh, it's not so much that... Uh, there's a particular answer that I want to get out every time or that my answer has to be exactly right every time. It's just the fact that we're going to the Scripture that makes it really interesting to me. Uh, I mean, I have a time every day when I have to study the Bible to keep moving forward in it. I assume uh, you're continuing forward in your biblical studies as well, Dr. Barry, right? Some be- days better than others. <laughs> I understand that. I mean, literally, it's true. Uh, but the reality is we have to grow all the time. The only way to grow as a believer is in the Word of God. We have to be in the Scripture all the time. There's never a time when we learn enough of it that we can say, okay, I've got it. I have the truth now and I'm finished. But we do have the truth. We just need to come to it every day in the Word of God. So I want to encourage you to do that. And thank you so much for listening faithfully, patiently on Jerry Johnson Live. We're going to look forward to seeing you again tomorrow. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. 
Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.